episode 53. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. You know that I love BU period patches and I'm super excited because BU have now brought out a CBD range which includes a CBD muscle balm, CBD oral spray and CBD oral drops and I thought I would share a testimonial from someone who's been um, using them so you guys can get a real life idea of how they work. How I honestly coped before BU period released this product I genuinely don't know. This balm has been my absolute godsend this week. As many of you know I've been in and out of hospital with some sort of endo flare. The balm has really helped take the edge off my back and stomach pain. If you're curious to learn more about what people are saying about the BU range whether it's their patches or their CBD products you could head to their Instagram which is at BU period and they have testimonials on there and they kind of share people's stories that they've put up on Instagram of trying them out or when they're in pain and they put them on and they're kind of verdict so that's really interesting and helpful if you're a little bit on the fence and you're not sure if they're going to work for you. If you want to check them out then head to the link in my show notes and start soothing period pain the natural way. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis diet grocery list. This free download gives you an overview of the endometriosis diet and eating for your hormones, tips on shopping for endo on a budget and deep dives into everything I eat on a weekly basis every month. I've also provided my favourite resources for learning more about nutrition for endo if you want to go that bit further. This download is a really perfect way to get an understanding of an anti-inflammatory diet for endometriosis and what that might look like. As always, this guide doesn't replace your medical treatment and it's not intended to treat or cure endometriosis, but it provides you with options that help me to live well with endometriosis. And it's here to inspire you to shop maybe a little bit differently and try different foods out. It's not a diet protocol, so it's not a diet that you should be following, you know, to a T perfectly. This is my personal diet and it's here to serve you and inspire you and give you some ideas and see what eating for endo is like in real life. To download just head to the show notes and follow the link to get your copy. So today I'm really excited to bring you an interview with Jessica Drummond who is the founder of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and the leader of the course I'm currently studying which is Integrative Women's Health Coaching. And then I'm also doing the pelvic pain program once I finish that, which actually when this airs, I might have completed. So I might be fully qualified by the time this airs, which will be exciting. Jessica has over a decade of experience as a women's and pelvic physical therapist and has studied at the University of Virginia, MRA University, the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, which I really want to study at um, one day, and Duke Integrative Medicine. Jessica definitely knows what she's talking about when it comes to women's health and especially pelvic pain and endometriosis. If you haven't heard of Jessica or heard her work, a great place to start would be with her book, Nutrition for Relieving Pelvic Pain. This book is a short 
um, ebook. You can buy it on Amazon and it's suitable for practitioners and patients. And so we talk about this book a lot in the interview. Jessica really specializes um, obviously in women's health, but she is highly trained and experienced in the area of pelvic pain, um, which is why I chose to train with her um, institute. And I think what she has to say about pelvic pain is just fascinating. Her approach to treating people with pelvic pain and conditions like endometriosis is holistic and it focuses on the whole person. So their lifestyle, trauma that might have occurred earlier in their life, genetics, food, and even spirituality and their connection to community, which is what we discuss quite heavily in this interview. Jessica takes a functional medicine perspective, which looks at essentially the root causes of a condition and addresses those factors rather than simply treating and often masking the symptoms, which many of us with endometriosis are familiar with. In this episode, Jessica and I discuss why it's so important to have a support network when living with pelvic pain. A huge part of the course that I'm studying is about creating a community and a well, like, a, well, we're going to talk about more in the interview, so I won't go into it too much, but it, you know, it's, it's fascinating how much our sense of connection to others um, and even spirit, spirituality affects our health. We also talk about kind of foundational pillars, um, the foundations of our life and how they need to be in place if we want to be able to really kind of work on healing any condition, essentially, you know, trying to support our health from a place of feeling really unsafe at home can be challenging. And we also talk about her functional nutrition approach to the endometriosis diet, kind of obviously saying endometriosis diet loosely. And, you know, we talk about the book and reference to her teachings in that as well. I want to, before we dive into this interview, oh, another thing we talk about, which is fascinating, is blood sugar. Because I've got questions about blood sugar and eating a plant-based diet. And I'm hoping to have someone else on the show to talk about this. I'm not going to mention who yet, but fingers crossed that I get her to kind of explore it further. But Blood diet, blood sugar has come, is surfacing has been more and more important for hormone health. So, I'm curious as to how a plant based diet affects that. So we talk about that as well. Before we dive in, I just want to apologize. Really, I feel like I've kind of fucked up in this episode because Jessica, Jessica's kind of like work is focused on like women's health, but of course you can have endometriosis and being trans or non-binary. I really struggled in how to, usually you'll notice that I say people with endometriosis or menstruators, obviously if there's a study or a fact that has been, you know, the research has been done on women specifically, I have to say women because otherwise I'm not giving you guys the correct information. And of course, if I'm talking about someone's work and it's specific to women or it's, you know, the Institute of Women's Integrative Women's Health Institute, that's that's the one. I'm going to say the word women because that's what it is. But Jessica and I talk a lot about, in history, women's previous roles, the stereotypical roles of the woman in the home or um, in society, and also how women have been addressed in the medical industry historically. So we kind of talk a lot about history 
and facts like uh sorry research facts studies and then we talk a lot about the work that Jessica does which is women specific so I found my brain couldn't keep up when I'm having a conversation and trying to think what questions to ask with the distinguishing right where do I say women and where do I say people and it wasn't a conscious choice to not ever say people but I'm not sure that I did say people in this interview and I think I said women where actually I should have said people in some circumstances where I'm referring to historical con to a historical context yes women you know it, historically women stayed at home etc but in you know context where I'm talking about today I should have been using like more inclusive language so if anyone picks up on that um I our is offended by that or just feels a little bit left out of the conversation I am truly truly sorry and I am always working to be aware of this and conscious of it and I just I made a mistake in this interview and yeah I apologize for that and I am doing my utmost to do better in the future so yeah I just thought I'd let I just thought I'd say that because I don't want anyone listening to this and feeling left out or you know offended now that is yeah done and said Let's get to Jessica. I hope you enjoy. I feel that you have so many qualifications. I really admire the work that you do. And of course, as you know, um, I'm on your women's health coaching course. So I'd really love to start with um, your work in pelvic health and what your training involved and also why you're so passionate. Because I think as a student, I can see how passionate you are and it's been really interesting to learn about your journey and how your kind of career has evolved. So yeah, it'd just be great to hear more about you and the work that you do with women's pelvic health. Yeah. So I started my career, uh, I graduated from graduate school as a physical therapist in 1999. And originally, you know, I went into physical therapy because it just seemed like a, um, organic next step. I was good at science. I liked sports. I was an athlete as a kid. And I thought I would be doing sports medicine, orthopedics. And I did start out there. But pretty quickly, I began to specialize in sort of the women's health version of orthopedics and sports medicine. So I had a patient who had had breast cancer surgery. And her, so then subsequent to that surgery, she had a shoulder issue, which I was dealing with as her physical therapist. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I started taking courses in, you know, around back and pelvic pain for women who were pregnant, which again was sort of an orthopedic mindset applied to women with specific women's health issues. And from there, it just really evolved in terms of my physical therapy training. I learned more about pelvic health in general, worked with a lot of women with incontinence and constipation and pelvic pain. And pelvic pain was often some of the most challenging diagnoses that I worked with as a physical therapist. So things like endometriosis, vulvodynia, painful sex, painful periods, uh, bladder pain, and I see interstitial cystitis. Some women would do well with the pelvic floor rehab approach, but we had a number who would really plateau or would go on to more complex treatments and not necessarily really come to a complete resolution of their issue. And so after, so my first daughter was born in 2003 and I 
how to find pregnancy and her delivery was super easy. And then I crashed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, really I just had, I had terrible fatigue. I got pneumonia or, and some other viruses. I was like getting sick all the time. And then it really evolved into a pretty severe anxiety issue. And no one really traced it back to the baby, except for the intense fatigue part at the beginning was sort of like, oh yeah, this is normal. You know, it was my first baby. So they're like, what do you think? You know, you're just not sleep for the next couple of years, like get used to it. And I was like, are you sure? Um, knowing what I know now, I'm fairly certain that I had a Epstein-Barr virus reactivation at that time because I had had mono twice when I was a kid. And so, but I didn't really understand the interaction. And even when I had had mono as a kid, when I got it the second time, they were like, oh my gosh, well, this is so rare. This never happens. Basically you get this once and that's it. Um, obviously we know otherwise now, but what really showed up symptomatically was that I had dysregulation of cortisol and, and my hormone system. And so we, at the time, so that was almost, you know, like 15 years ago now, a little less by the, I, it took about three or four years to really get a clear diagnosis. Um, but, you know, at the time we call this adrenal fatigue, which is kind of an oversimplification really, but that's what it feels like. You're, you're just exhausted. And I had to stop working for a while. I could barely take care of my kid it was a really rough period and it was challenging because even though I was working in healthcare and I was working in women's health, you know, there weren't good answers. I tried the antidepressants and all of that, which didn't help. Um, I was, I had both insomnia and intense fatigue. <laughs> I knew that. So, yeah. So it was just terrible. And, but eventually I found a functional medicine doctor who was a physician that I knew from years before when I worked at Women's Hospital, and we sent her all of our, you know, quote unquote, difficult patients. And I was like, oh, yes, I am a difficult patient. I need to go see Dr. Gross. And she is one of the earliest uh, physicians who started practicing functional medicine, like probably in the 80s, 1980s. So she was very experienced. And Essentially, you know, what I had to do was completely change my relationship with work, with stress, with exercise, with sugar, and my nutrition was the first step back to healing. So I always thought that I ate very healthfully. I was, you know, vegetarian at times, but my blood sugar was really out of whack and um, you know, I was kind of like a carb vegan, <laughs> you know. Um, and especially because in my family, my dad had heart disease and, you know, at the time it was all low fat, low fat, low fat. And so I really had to change everything about that. And, but once I kind of the fog lifted and I had all this energy and, you know, my hormones came back in balance, I had struggled with infertility for many years. And then I was able to have a second baby and, you know, all naturally. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, my patients with pelvic pain, there's definitely a hormonal component to that. And as I began to investigate it further, I was like, there's definitely an immune system component to that. 
So if we have this combination of pelvic health, physical therapy with, you know, functional nutrition, lifestyle medicine, maybe we can help these women get better without, you know, uh, putting in, you know, uh, surgically inserting stimulators and trying all the medications that don't often work when kind of, you know, when women would fail those like basic first treatments, it was always something very invasive that often didn't help. So now I sort of stepped back and thought, okay, can we integrate all of this for those patients with pelvic pain who have really challenging cases? And I, I mean, I feel like I'm going to, I know your answer from what you just explained, but in our, in the early modules of the course, Um, you discuss the challenges facing modern women today and the toll that it, you know, that takes on our health. And I feel that you've touched upon that with your own personal story, but I feel like that's kind of where so much of this starts. Could you, could you talk more about those challenges and how they're affecting our health? Absolutely. So I think women, you know, in modern life, um, don't are are increasingly isolated. And I think, you know, when I was a young mother, there wasn't really social media. So, you know, we're increasingly being held to a standard of everything looks great on Instagram, you know, Um, and we're increasingly being required to do a lot. They, you know, like we have not just work and parenting, but sort of the emotional labor of parenting. So increasingly, you know, fathers are taking more of a role at home, which is great, but there's still this sort of management role at home that women are running. So fathers might be more present at home, but they're not really aware day to day of the permission slips that are due or the, you know, socks that everyone has grown out of, or like we're going on trip in two weeks. And my daughter was talking to my mom on the phone this morning and she was like, Oh, we'll see you in two weeks when we're in Florida. And I'm going actually to speak for a work event. And my, the family's coming cause it's going to be in a nice location and it's relatively near my parents. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know, mental note, get bathing suits. And my mom was like, Oh, well, she's got a lot of bathing suits. And I was like, from last year, <laughs> <laughs> do they still fit? We at least need to, you know, so my husband would probably not just naturally be reminded that we have two weeks of bathing suit assessment we have to do. So that is, I think that there's, there's two things. There's the sort of impossible standard. There's the personal pressure. Um, there's the vast opportunities. Um, but there are very few people around saying, you know, you can do this, but you don't have to, or you have choices about not having to do everything. Um, and there are a lot of women who are sort of financially struggling, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren years and years ago wrote the book, the two income trap, you know, it's in, in industrialized nations, you know, to live at the same standard of living that your parents did both parents work full-time or at least three-quarter time or part-time. And and so to maintain that level, so there's a lot going on. You know, student loan debt is, is very heavy for younger women. Um, you know, in the U.S., we don't really have any uh, postpartum 
time. There's not really recovery time. Women are expected to be back at work at the maximum of about six weeks. Yeah, I was really surprised when I read that. I didn't know that until I did your course because we're we're quite good in the UK with maternity leave as far as I'm aware. Yeah, that that is true from from my understanding as well, which is great. Um, you know, so at least there's some recovery, but I, I just think, you know, there's a lot on the plates of most modern women. And what happens then is that they feel either internally or externally that they have to do all of it. And no one is really kind of saying, hey, let me help. Or even if they are, they're not really knowing how to accept that help. Or you can, there's a number of options you can do now, but you have the option to do less of this or delegate more or ask for support from your family, from your partner. In fact, we just had a conversation in our student group about like, what level of chores do your kids do, right? You know, think about 100 years ago, my grandmother, I'm fortunate my grandmother is, is still alive. And she tells me all the time about kind of what her life was like through various phases. And, you know, when she was like five years old, she was responsible for babysitting her little sister. <laughs> it was like, go play. And she, you know, she grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So it wasn't like they were on a farm. It was like they'd run down to the quarry or something that was probably super dangerous and just yeah. like <laughs> come back, you know, hours later. Uh, and now, you know, if you send your kid by themselves to the playground, you can get arrested, right? So there's a there's a wide discrepancy in kind of the load that women carry compared to past generations. And then the extra load that new mothers face with sort of posting how perfect their life is on social media, which, you know, is just a lot of pressure all around. Yeah, of course. And I, I think we're all feeling that pressure of social media, kind of regardless of our status, our mar- you know, like whether we're single or whether we're married or whether we have children or not, there seems to be always something to some kind of standard to uphold. Yes. And it starts really le- young. You know, my oldest is 15 and, you know, it really starts in middle school, high school. Mm, absolutely. And my cousins are around the same time and um, same time, same age, and their kind of Instagram presence is is scary. I have to say. <laughs> um, related to this, in both in your book um, and in the course, you talk a lot about having a web of support, and I really I found it fascinating to kind of understand more about the idea of like the village and you know, that kind of like tribe of women that we used to have that we we don't really have anymore. So I kind of wanted to start there. And there's so many things to ask you about like pelvic health and dealing with pelvic pain. But I feel like given the challenges that we are facing in society, like starting with the web of support could be really, yeah, really interesting for people to hear because it, it really had never occurred to me, to be honest until I learned it in the course. Yeah. And, you know, I think these foundational strategies and skills and community building is actually the real medicine. You know, we can get complex about should, you know, women with pelvic pain be taking more magnesium or zinc to heal their guts or the right probiotics or whatever. But none of that is as effective if there isn't a safe place in your life 
for your nervous system to relax and shift into that, you know, healing state. And that's the challenge that most women and people in general struggle with these days is that the time during the day that their nervous system is in a complete relaxation mode is very little or non-existent for some women. And this is especially hard if you've had any history of trauma. And a lot of women with pelvic and sexual pain do have a history of abuse and trauma. In fact, there was a study done in the United States that uh, 80% of practicing female physical therapists have been assaulted or sexually assaulted at work um, or harassed. So, you know, this is a very, very common thing. If it had happened, if it happens in childhood, then your entire sort of endocrine nervous system sort of set point of safety is forever altered. So we have to make a deliberate attempt um, in our lives to create situations and uh, relationships where our nervous systems can completely relax. Because when that happens, our hormones are able to kind of recalibrate, our immune system strengthens. But if you think about, you know, over the last week, you're working, you're running around town, you've got things to do, you know, you're exercising hardcore, you're at boot camp, you know, you've got parents and children to take care of. How many hours were you really in complete relaxation mode? Because a lot of women aren't even sleeping with great quality. So, so what we have to do is start with creating literal kind of webs of support. You know, do you feel really safe and relaxed and comfortable in your home, in your primary relationship with your partner, with your family? Do you feel safe? Are there at least two friends that, you know, they may not be physically near you, but you can speak with them on a very regular basis who you completely trust to be vulnerable with? Um, and if we don't have these safe spaces and safe relationships, all of the other healing factors are not going to be as effective because the nervous system is constantly in that upregulated mode. So I created this idea in the in the image of a web because sometimes mom, women, whether your moms or not, feel like they have to constantly reciprocate. So, you know, if someone helps them by helping them move, they have to kind of directly reciprocate in some way or they feel very guilty. But if you think of the, your community of women, which can be a relatively fluid and even open system because your community of women overlaps with other people's communities of women. And, and but I think let's just stick to women for now. So I was teaching a course about six, seven years ago now, and one of the women on the course was a pelvic health physical therapist. And she said, well, you know, when I was explaining this, con this concept where we, we will be reciprocating, but within the whole web, it doesn't have to be a tit for tat kind of reciprocation. So with us, right? And so that thus that frees us up to reciprocate using our best and easiest gifts. Like if we're the, you know, person who hates to party plan, but we're happy to drive people everywhere, you know, we 
can choose the easy thing. It's fine. So for her, she had had a patient who she helped with her pelvic health issue, and she was so grateful. And they weren't really friends, but their children were friends. And I think they were like on the same, you know, soccer team or something at, in high school. So the patient said, okay, um, you know, Jane Doe, uh, I, I, I'm so appreciative of this work you did to help me heal my pelvic pain. So like, if you ever, you know, if you ever, your daughter needs a ride home from practice, I'm there anyway. I know you work late a couple nights a week to see people after work. And she was like, oh my gosh, no, I could never impose on you. But I told her like by refusing that help, you're actually limiting the the overall web of support because she in her community had a very rare skill, you know, pelvic health physical therapists are pretty hard to find, especially in some cases, right? And this woman was gonna be picking up her kid at the exact same game anyway. So that gives her an opportunity to help in a way that's easy for her. And it allows, it frees her up some space to use her very unique gift within the community for some other woman who needs it, right? Yeah, yeah, so true. So if we think of the web of support as being a broad and relatively loose and fluid interconnection between your friends, your family members, your sisters, your acquaintances, people you pay for different services, and then their webs, it becomes um, much easier to give and receive support in the way that feels easiest to you. Yeah, no, I think that makes so much sense. It's just, we've, I think so many of us have become really insular in our lives, or we have, you know, just maybe just our partners. And that's kind of as far as we would go in terms of asking for help. So it's it's almost quite a radical idea to to have a web of support and actually be proactive within it and thinking about how it could work for you and others, especially because there is this many women feel a sense of guilt and also they wouldn't want to be selfish. Yeah. Which is like a really interesting trait that so many people have, especially like older generations that's kind of, I've, I've noticed like it it's different now with my generation but beforehand I think there was that idea of like you know a woman can't be selfish it has to all be about everyone else yeah absolutely so I think what you get with older generations is that feeling sort of women it's their job it's their obligation um that sort of self-sacrifice for the family and for other people and then for younger generations, as you mentioned, there's a lot of virtual interconnection, but not real vulnerability of friendship and care and support. So while they may have, you know, a thousand Instagram friends, they don't, you know, they don't have those two deep friendships, which is more important. So working to develop that and, and, the nice thing about the web of support is it doesn't mean that it also takes a little of the pressure off that, right? So, you know, younger women and, and middle-aged women, you know, move a lot more than, than older women did. Um, it's hard to have sort of the two best friends you might have had if you grew up in the same town. You know, when we look at the research from something like the Blue Zone studies, one of the reasons that people in those regions are so healthy is starting at essentially preschool. They're sort of make friends and then they're living in these unique kind of interpersonal environments in Okinawa, in Sardinia, 
where, you know, you're hanging out with people you've known your entire life and just playing cards and talking and getting together. Um, I saw this when I was teaching in China, the older people meet in the morning in the park at the Temple of Heaven and do like physical exercise, like Tai Chi kinds of things. And then they, they meet later in little groups every day and play cards and other games to kind of keep their minds connected. Um, so there's this physical connection, intellectual connection, interpersonal connection that, I mean, it would be pretty rare to see a group of high schoolers doing right now. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's so very so, true. You know, or women in their 20s and be like, what? But what we have to do is take those relationships offline and they don't have to be, you don't have to be everything for everyone. You know, you, those, which is what sometimes I think puts a lot of pressure on, as you said, your partnership, right? So if you're relying on your spouse or your significant other to kind of be your entire emotional and kind of day-to-day -day support, and you're not surrounding yourself with little bits of support from other people and giving little bits of support to other people, that's a lot of pressure on that relationship. Absolutely. And we can't be all things to one person. Right. You know, it's, it's not, I think it can deplete us and I'm not sure how realistic it really is. Yeah, I agree. So on on that note, in terms of talking about the web of support and kind of starting this journey with healing pelvic pain, another concept that I thought was really interesting was you talking about dealing with our basic needs first. I think that so many of us, including myself, will kind of want to jump in, deep dive into like the fixing of the problem and will want to know the exact protocol, what to eat, etc. But then you've got all of these other things going on in in your foundations and your essential basic needs that are kind of going to hinder that that progress if you just jump ahead and ignore that for example like a really unhealthy or unhappy relationship so could you talk us a bit talk to us a bit more about that like what what to consider when we are starting that journey what are our basic needs what should we be what should we be looking at first? Yeah. So, and the challenge with this for women who are currently in pelvic pain is if you haven't developed this beforehand, it can be a little tricky to develop when you're in, in, a, in, a, in a vulnerable situation. So you step back and you think about, is there anyone in my life that I can trust? You know, it might be your parents, siblings, cousins, friends from old older times that you begin to kind of gently put together this web of support, calling them, you know, being positive to helping them in any small way that you can. If you're, you know, if you're in really significant pelvic pain, you may not be able to contribute as much to that relationship as you would like. But I think we underestimate the benefit of having someone who gives you true emotional support, which is really just holding space, you know, um, listening, encouraging, um, allowing someone to experience their full, uh, experience of emotions, even if they're not positive, you know, being a little bit of a, a safe space for someone can be very valuable. And then what are some other things you can offer, you know, really anything, you know, making, 
making them a, a small painting, cooking them a small meal, you know, whatever you can do to start contributing in a way that's um, building that little web. And so what you want to be doing is assessing your relationships and seeing which of them might be negative for your health. So do you have someone in your life who is very negative or is constantly pushing your boundaries or, um, you know, doesn't believe you that you have real pain. So as an example, one of my clients from years ago had pretty severe pelvic pain and, and bladder issues. And she, you know, some days really couldn't do much. She was just kind of laying on the couch and at night, sometimes she would stay up playing video games because she just, um, you know, needed to keep her mind distracted, but it, it messed with her sleep. And, but her family, she had two teenage sons and they would come home from school and be like, mom, you're so lazy. How come you don't, haven't done my laundry? Like they treated her like crap. And I said, they're, they're nearly adults. They were like six, 15 and 17 or 16 and 18, something like that. And I said, you know, they can do their own laundry. They can cook dinner. They can take care of themselves. There's a lot of things they can do. Um, so let's play with that and see how it feels to create some boundary around, um, what you're willing to tolerate. And she did. And she started with laundry and she said, you know, you guys are going to be off to college pretty soon. I want to make sure you know how to do your own laundry. So I'm not doing your laundry anymore. I'm going to show you how, and then it's up to you to be responsible for, you know, having clothes. <laughs> and so when they would do it, her pain changed. It reduced. Um, her husband. Started, so interesting. Yeah. Her husband started doing the dishes, her pain reduced. And there were times when it was completely gone and when she wouldn't need to stay up playing video games and she could sleep well. And it was just such a fascinating thing to observe. Other times they really pushed back. Um, they really treated her badly. And sometimes she really held her ground. Her pain would stay more modest. Other times she would allow her boundaries to be crumpled more and her pain would come back significantly. It was a really interesting thing to for her to start to observe and journal. And over time, so this took several months, but eventually uh, one, like it was like a long weekend or something, she and her family went on a kind of a local vacation. They drove a few hours away and were going to like a small town where there, I think there were like antique shops and places to walk around like a cute little town. And he, I can't remember one, it was either one of her sons or her husband who just wasn't feeling well when they got there. And one of them started complaining and didn't want to go to the little shops and wanted to like stay home and watch basketball or something. Or something. Yeah. And she said, okay, fine. And she left them there. And she really wasn't a very independent person because she was so fearful of being by herself when the pain could show up at any moment. Right. Um, so she was at home, she was mostly by herself or inside or kind of kept to a really small radius. She didn't feel very safe leaving as you often don't when you, when you have severe pain like that, and it can be unpredictable and, you know, and it involves where the restroom is and all that kind of stuff. 
But she gathered up her courage and she took herself out to the town and she spent the entire day there, you know, walking on cobblestones and in and out of shops. And she had absolutely no pain. And it was just such a, an eye-opening experience to see how when we emotionally allow our boundaries to be destroyed um, or, or crossed, then it actually has a can have a direct physical impact. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I've spoken to people who have made changes to their diet and they've experienced a certain amount of relief. It might even be a significant amount, but it's when they've then made like lifestyle changes that they've seen like you know they've kind of really gone through that healing journey and they've really seen the reduction of course not you know not for everyone everyone varies but I do think it's an area that we can gloss over yeah because you know it's hard to make those kinds of changes it's it's a lot easier to eat differently although even that can be challenging because Again, you're, you know, you're eating, you're, there's only so much time, there's more cooking involved. So I like to think of the foundation as involving several categories. And you can start with whichever one feels easiest. Sleep. So, you know, sleep and circadian rhythm. A lot of our circadian rhythms are off because we're staring at blue light screens very, you know, so much. I mean, yeah. I'm certainly guilty of this because oh, of the work. So am I. <laughs> um, but if we turn that off, by 8 or 9 p.m. at the latest every night, TVs, phones, you know, I literally like turn off our Wi-Fi in the house and read library books after 9 p.m. Um, so doing that, going to bed relatively early, you know, no later than 11, getting up and going outside and exposing our eyes to daylight makes a big difference to kind of resetting that clock and helping with sleep because sleep is so important for pain relief. Um, and so sleep and day and light rhythm, exposure to nature, you know, we used to evolutionarily live in nature and there's a lot of benefit to that, uh, that has been shown in, in many studies and we are not really even in nature. So I prescribe to my clients, even if they can't really exercise. So maybe you can't walk for 30 minutes outside, but you could sit outside, you could do a little bit of yoga, you could lay in the grass, you know, um, just being outside, uh, barefoot in the sand and the grass can be really helpful. And, so sleep, circadian rhythm, nature, nutrition, for sure, movement. And again, sometimes it's very gentle at first, um, touch. So if you're feeling uncomfortable with, you know, having people touch you, having more of a therapeutic touch, like body work can be helpful. Um, you know, pelvic floor rehab, any kind of physical physiotherapy that makes sense. Um, just connection, hugs, you know, a lot of people who are in a lot of pain are very physically isolated because they just don't want, you know, any more um, kind of impact or any, you know, it's kind of like when you've breastfed for months and you're like, just don't touch me anymore, you know, <laughs> but there can be some restful, positive touch that doesn't require anything from that person. 
um, which can be beneficial. And then looking at environmental toxin exposures is also really essential. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I actually had Megan Cleary on a couple, oh gosh, actually it was like last year talking about, I can't remember the name of it, but um, a chemical that was given to women in America to help with um, infertility. And then that actually caused loads of hormonal disorders in their children, the, the, any of the girls. Um, so that's obviously like a, yeah, a, a major one. Just a reminder that today's episode is sponsored by BU. Literally, these guys are one of my favorite period companies, full stop. I love BU already, thanks to their incredible natural pain relieving period patches, which I've spoken to you guys about. But as if that wasn't enough, they've now brought out a high quality CBD range too. You can choose from a CBD muscle balm, which contains only natural ingredients, uh, oral drops or sprays, which are flavored only with natural flavorings. The oral drops and the oral spray come in three different flavors, natural, lemon and berry. And the CBD muscle is purely natural and contains beeswax and some gorgeous smelling oils such as lavender and eucalyptus. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes and let me know if you try them. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis diet grocery list. This download gives you basically a lowdown of what I eat every week on um, a monthly basis and my personal take on the endometriosis diet. It's not a protocol, set protocol that you have to or should follow, but it is here to serve you, give you inspiration and help you see what eating for endometriosis might look like in real life. It's there for you to kind of take inspiration from and help you put your own approach together. To download, just head to the show notes and follow the link to get your copy. You mentioned nutrition and I know this is such a big area, so I don't know how much you want to go into this, but you have a protocol in in your book and that's kind of for both um, physicians to work with, but also um, patients. And could you take us through like your recommendations? Because there's, there's quite a lot to it, isn't there? And is it something that you would recommend doing with a coach or with a medical professional do you think it's something that can be done on your own well I think it depends on how complicated your situation is and you know how knowledgeable you are about nutrition and how easy it is for you to cook there's a lot of factors right because it is kind of complicated it's not the same for everyone there's no quote-unquote endo diet there's no quote-unquote IC diet there are factors that are common among various diagnoses, but the way to figure it out, and I would suggest doing this with one of our skilled health coaches, we've graduated probably hundreds of women now, our clinicians around the world, um, physical therapists who we've trained, nutritionists, but it's a, it's a different process for everyone. But this, this sort of step-by-step -step is you start with a basic elimination diet, which eliminates about 10-ish foods. You know, there's some variability depending on, again, if you have bladder issues or you have muscle and joint issues. Um, and just as an assessment tool. So we take these foods out for three to four weeks 
and see what happens with your body. But while we're doing that, we're very deliberately adding foods that are very nutrient dense and very anti-inflammatory. So lots of vegetables in an easily digestible form, plenty of protein, amino acids, healthy fats to build hormones. And when we focus in that direction on what to add, you know, we can start in some women, it can completely eliminate, you know, the digestive issues, the constipation, the, you know, general inflammation that you have when you're eating sugar and dairy and sometimes nightshades and, you know, certain plant foods that sometimes are irritating to some people. Um, so when we make that shift, some people that's enough, like they sort of see a big shift and then it's a matter of how healthy is the digestive function. So you could be eating the perfect diet, whatever that is for you. It, you know, if you're eating in your car and you're yelling at everybody while you're doing it and your boss is yelling at you, <laughs> like, it's not going to, it's not going to be very nourishing for you. So, you know, are you chewing, uh, 25 to 40 times per bite is what we recommend. Are you eating in a relaxed situation where, you know, you're with people you like and you're not yelling at, um, are you eating in front of the TV or in your car, right? And then do you have adequate stomach acid? Do you have adequate digestive enzymes? Is your gut motility good? Are you getting enough hydration? So we work through the kind of from the mouth to the anus, like step by step is the digestive tract functioning. And then we looked at the lining of the digestive tract, which is where all the nutrients are absorbed. And if that's inflamed or, you know, they call it in the popular press leaky gut or in the research increased in intestinal permeability, which can expose people to more bacteria and undigested food than their immune system is really used to. So that can cause inflammatory or autoimmune kind of a picture. Um, and then we help to heal that lining. There's lots of things we can do there. Zinc, glutamine, kind of some gentle herbs like, um, chamomile. And then we look at the bacteria that live inside the digestive system because they communicate directly with the brain, which of course is where pain decisions are made. They, they communicate directly with the immune system, which definitely has a, a say there as well. Um, so, you know, if there are overgrowth of, of not great bacteria in the small intestine, a lot of things can be problematic and, and healing the digestive function, uh, for various, it depends on what's going on with you symptomatically, but, and that can in up to 50% of cases actually completely resolve the pelvic pain without even doing anything directly to the pelvic region. So digestive function is key. Hormonal health is key, which involves fats, modulating exercise, again, nutrient density. So we, the body has the raw materials to make those fats, sometimes adaptogens like maca or uh, ashwagandha, which help to kind of balance the stress resilience. And so we essentially look at this system by system. So digestive system, immune system, hormone or endocrine system, 
And then of course the nervous system, because things like serotonin play a role in pain, um, your nervous system's ability to be kind of down reacted or what we, what you're having your parasympathetic nervous system responding more so that rest and digest calmness is, is important to access regularly. And we can do that with nutrition too, because, you know, if you're eating like a fast food, high stress diet, it's also, you know, that's chemical information for your nervous system versus if your nervous system's like, oh my gosh, there's plenty of nutrients here in this environment, uh, plenty of protein, plenty of fat, you know, it's not stressing that you're in like a hunger situation, but if you're eating, you know, the fast food, candy, wine, and caffeine diet, then yeah. <laughs> it's actually a stressor to the nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to, I want to ask a specific question because I think if people went away and read your book and, and couldn't currently afford to get um, a health coach, they might hit the same kind of stumbling block. So I read, have you read the book Woman Code? No, but I, I know some of, okay. of that, like, uh, who wrote that? Um, Alyssa. Yeah, Alyssa Vitti. Yeah, okay, I know a little bit of her work, yes. So she focuses quite a lot on blood sugar balancing, and um, obviously I know you do as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed is in your protocol, meat, some meat is still in, in your protocol. And within the blood like blood sugar balancing protocol that um, is in woman code, she says to have, try not to have more than one, like try not to have two slow releasing carbs at lunch and only to have one. And then dinner would be two, two vegetable portions. Obviously you could mix the veg up to have a variety, but only two veg portions and a protein. You could do that with lentils um, or pulses, etc. I'm I'm vegan, so this is why I ask. But then it makes me question: Am I actually how am I disrupting my blood sugar because the pulses are still a slow releasing carb? So, for example, at lunch, I don't eat that many grains. But if I was to have rice, I feel like, well, I can't have pulses with that. I'm just going to have to have like a really light veg. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's. I don't know what's right. <laughs> well, this varies genetically a little bit. Um, first of all, in my experience, and I've talked to Lara Bryden about this and a few other people, it's very challenging to completely resolve hormonal issues without any animal protein. Um, it's not impossible because I did publish this study with a client who was vegetarian, although she was vegetarian, so she did eat eggs um, for a couple reasons. One, the soy protein is usually a big problem, so we have to get rid of that, which limits our... Yeah, I don't eat any soy. But the second problem is blood sugar. Now, this is not always the case, though, because there is a genetic variability, uh, which needs some further exploration. But one of my professors in my doctoral program has been studying this for about mm, at least 15 years. And so there are some genetic markers that align with the blood type. So if you have a blood type of A, you're more likely able to tolerate a, you know, a healthy vegan diet. 
and keep your blood sugar stable. So um, if you're an O, that may be almost impossible. And then in between, um, it varies. And I was also talking with a number of the surgeons when I was speaking at the endometriosis summit a month or so ago here in, in New Jersey in the U.S., and they are finding that people who have been on vegan diets who are vegan by culture um, really have a hard time recovering from surgery because their tissues are just not as resilient. Um, so, and we see the same thing postpartum with like pelvic floor challenges. It can be hard to have a complete recovery sometimes, you know, especially if the issue was is really severe with lack of um, kind of resilience in those, in those tissues. But there is a genetic variability that I do see in practice and has been studied by Dr. Diadamo that, you know, I do think there probably are some women who can tolerate being on a healthy vegan diet. The person I would suggest studying more with around blood sugar and vegan diets is Dr. Rita Marie Lascalzo. She I believe she is vegan. Okay. Um, she definitely supports vegan lifestyle as an option. And I agree with that as long as we can keep everything, you know, balanced and, you know, and, and again, depending on the severity of the issue, what else is going on in their lives, right? Cause you could be a super healthy, I don't know, like I said, you could pick whatever the perfect diet is for you, but if you're on a stress roller coaster, like that's, it's not going to help. Right. So you do have to consider the other foundational factors, but Dr. Lascalzo and I very much agree in that blood sugar stability is one of the foundational keys for optimizing hormone health and endocrine health. Um, and she, you know, because she is vegan or at least vegetarian, um, she has a little more experience with doing that in those populations. But so I would say that for a client of mine who was vegan, I don't think I would limit beans. It really, we would have to test it. So, you know, I would try some different meals. A lot of times people know the meals that keep their blood sugar most balanced because, you know, they feel good and stable after that, right? Yeah. So you could do it by tracking the diet. So let's say you get up in the morning and you have, you know, avocado and vegetables and some beans or something. And you feel really good. Like that's a good foundational morning meal for you. And then at lunch, you add a little bit of grain and you feel okay. But like by three o'clock, you're a little sleepy, or maybe it depends. Like if you're more physically active where you're kind of needing that, um, that grain foundation, I do find that most of the women that I work with need some grains to optimize their hormone health. And, you know, being rigidly paleo or keto can be problematic unless there's like, unless you're using it as a jumpstart for like significant weight loss for, again, it helps initially with blood sugar balance, but it's not really long-term sustainable. Um, so I, I, I think that we, I kind of tend toward, you know, middle of the road, um, med between Mediterranean and paleo for most women, but some eat very little meat. You know, I have worked with vegan and vegetarian clients. Some really don't tolerate grains well much. So we, we just 
use them as, you know, as we kind of need them. And it depends on the physical activity. If you're like a heavy strength trainer or, you know, you work on a hospital floor as a nurse and you're picking up patients all the time, or, you know, you have a very physical job, you're a mom of like three kids under five, right? <laughs> you need those grains. Um, so we have to put these in context, but, uh, so you can track your food with how you feel from a energy and focus standpoint. I think that really gives us good information about blood sugar because you get a little spacey if your blood sugar is off. Um, and you can also track it by just getting a glucose monitor. And I have my patients for you know a week or so test their morning fasting glucose. Ideally, you want that between about 80 and 89. And then you eat a meal, take it right before the meal, take it 15 minutes after the meal and every 15 minutes for two hours. And there should be a gentle, you know, increase in blood sugar. That's the slope of a curve that's less than 20 points. Uh, so between right after the meal and your the peak of whatever that little curve is, usually your blood sugar will peak around an hour post meal. Um, and then it should be less than 20 points and then kind of gently slow back down. If you get the, the big swing where like you eat the beans and you know you were at 90 immediately post meal and then suddenly you're at 150 or 190, then I'm starting to be like, mm, no, that yeah. sounds a little. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes that makes so much sense. And I think my hesitation is like the mixing of them because it's like, oh, well, beans and rice are both slow releasing carbs so should I never have them together you know it's that it like completely threw off like the routine that I'd got into with my recipes that I'd you know that I kind of had developed but I think you're right I I know when something is affecting me affecting my blood sugar negatively and also when I I've, I've kind of gone off the wagon a little bit recently but when I was first working with my blood sugar, I, my energy really picked up. I felt really good. Mm -hmm. So I, so that obviously is an indication that it was, it was working well. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is why there's no one size fits all way to do this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think there's so many, there's so many diets at the moment and it can be really, really conflicting and confusing and obviously being a vegan I pay attention to a lot of a lot of scientists and researchers who do look into like the vegan diet and how good plant-based eating is for you so then I'm like well what about the blood sugar thing <laughs> right and and generally you know eating more plants no one disputes uh 100% I mean well mm. that's not true there are some weird kind of outliers out there who like oh, just eat me <laughs> but you know of anyone who's a serious scientist in nutrition, eating more plants is good. The challenge then is like a mild variety in what kinds of protein, how much, how often, you know, and there's genetic variability. There's activity level variability. There's, are you pregnant or not variability? There's, are you nursing or not variability? Are you perimenopausal or menopausal? And even your blood sugar, your insulin sensitivity varies throughout your menstrual month because when estrogen is highest, estrogen helps the body be more insulin sensitive. That's why 
women don't tend to have as many heart attacks as men until after menopause when they've lost that estrogen support. And why we want to go into menopause with really good adrenal resilience, because that's where we get our post-menopausal estrogen. Um, but during a regular cyclical month, if you, you know, as estrogen increases and it, it generally is at its highest levels around between day five and ovulation, you can tolerate a little more sugar of any kind because your body is more naturally insulin sensitive. Unfortunately, you crave it the most right before your period. Yeah. Yeah which is when you can actually tolerate it the least because if yeah. you, you know, your estrogen is at its lowest levels. So interesting. I find that completely resonates with how I feel about sugar. I, I feel that if I have some sugar when I'm ovulating, I feel fine. Yeah. It's really interesting. It can feel really daunting when we are thinking about changing our diet or just making some changes to better cope with, um, you know, endometriosis or pelvic pain. Do you have any tips for people who want to stay inspired on this journey or, you know, don't know what their first steps should be and are a bit intimidated by the, by the idea of, you know, getting started or an elimination diet? Honestly, I think it's really worth the investment if you can make it at all to work with a coach because working with a coach helps you to navigate those times when you're a little stuck, like that question you just asked me, you know, it's, it's a little complicated. There are a lot of facts and to have someone holding your hand through that journey. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's someone at first in your web of support, but the nice thing about working with a coach is they're, they don't really have any skinning in the game, right? They're all about you and they um, do have the knowledge of other people's experiences and the research that they've done and the training that they've done. Because working with a coach really helps you to um, navigate when things get challenging and when there are a lot of different factors at play, what to prioritize, what to change first, what to relax about, um, you know, where to focus your energy and doing that for even a relatively short period of time or, or, you know, intensely for a relatively short period of time. And then a occasional sort of maintenance relationship gives you a stability of your health that allows you so much more energy and, you know, ability to do the things that you want to do that I really think you'll, you'll find a, a pretty good return on that investment. Mm. And do you think if someone couldn't afford individual sessions, for example, do you think doing a course, which, you know, courses are usually cheaper, mm -hmm. do you think that could also be helpful? Like, for example, I know uh, Nicole, I don't know, is it Jardim? Yeah. Nicole, yeah. Yeah. She has a course, doesn't she? I believe she has a public course. Yes. Yeah. So we, they, she does, um, we're encouraging more of our graduates. We're actually developing content for them so that they can run more like group coaching programs with the, with the content already developed. Cause that's a bit of a technical stumbling block. So we're in the, <laughs> I'm actually starting with one of our master coaches to make the pelvic pain one next week. We have a DIY course. Um, on oh, brilliant. Yeah. If you go to uh, integrative women's health there is a, 
public resources tab and you can find the one on pelvic pain there. We have one for pelvic pain, one for preconception and one for general hormone balance. So that's a at least kind of DIY walk through it. Um, and then, as I said, our one of our next goals is to help our coaches develop group programs so that it can be less expensive. They can reach more women. Uh, Nicole does a good job of this now for men. Um, Dr. Susie Gronsky, who's a graduate of ours, she has great, she has some programs for men with pelvic pain. Um, Lorraine Feindrich does well with uh, the sort of mind-body aspects of women's uh, pelvic pain. So there are some group coaching programs out there, and, and I'm hoping they're continuing to grow. Okay, that's brilliant. That's really good to know because that's what I'd like to do once I'm certified. I'd like to develop it into a course. So it's amazing that you're developing, yeah, help for us to do that. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm excited about that because anytime we can take away the barriers, I mean, I would love to help every woman with endometriosis, but I only have time to see about six patients a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Of course. Well, um, just to finish off, where can people find your book? You've obviously just shared with us um, some links to your website and I'll put them in the show notes, but where can we find your book? The book is on Amazon. It's called Nutrition for Relieving Pelvic Pain. It's a, it's a Kindle book, but you can download it onto any device as long as you just download the Kindle app. Um, and it's available on Amazon and all over the world. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been such an honor to have you on. And I feel like I've already got so many more questions. I just want to have you on again. So Absolutely. yeah, it's been brilliant. And I'll send you, actually, I'll send you a link for the book that includes a number of bonuses around labs to ask your clinician for and some of the different supplements, explaining them in more detail and things like that. Brilliant. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you have a great day and yeah, a lovely weekend. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Bye. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Music.